Pretty Mental is about accepting our full selves and inspiring others to do the same by being daringly unfiltered. This means completely normalizing all things mental health and the wild journey that has brought us here. We are challenging the stigmatization of normal human suffering, and we are done pretending and subscribing to the notion that it is taboo to have challenging mental health experiences. Welcome to the Pretty Mental Health Club, and enjoy the show. Hey, Valentina. Hey, Paula. And hello, everybody. And welcome to another episode of Pretty Mental. Today, we are talking to Carlitos, Carlos Aviles. He is one of our best friends. He is also the character Mick on Good Girls, the badass one with tattoos everywhere. This is a really special conversation for us because we had an opportunity with Carlos to really deep dive into the male experience through the mental health journey. And something that came up is that suicide is actually four times more common in men than in women. So before we get going with this conversation, I just want to give a little bit of information on how do we have conversations around suicide with people that we care about. And the most important thing to remember is that we need to start destigmatizing these conversations by going boldly into them. So if you have somebody that you're worried about, somebody that's isolating themselves, somebody that's showing warning signs and saying things like, nothing matters anymore, I feel hopeless, um, and things of that nature, it there is nothing wrong with being direct about it and asking them boldly and directly, are you thinking of committing suicide or are these thoughts thoughts of suicide something that goes through your mind and just opening up the door and showing those people that we care about that we are not scared to stand in that conversation with them so that we can begin to bridge that space of isolation that is such a common experience for those that are experiencing suicidal thoughts. And as always, Pretty Mental Family, take in a deep breath with us. And tune in. Carlos. Carlos. What up, though? What up? We are so happy to have you back. Here we go again. I'm so happy to be back. You guys, Carlos was our very first guest ever on Pretty Mental, but we couldn't even release it because we had no idea what we were doing with the, <laughs> with, the with the audio. So then we all sounded like we were whispering. Yeah. So, but now we are back. Paula's cat was drinking my water out of my cup. Remember? That sounds pretty on. That sounds pretty on brand. She still does that. Yeah, Carlos, for real. She still does that. Valentina just hangs out with cat. I love her too. She's I so love cute. That cat. Yeah. She drinks she drinks everyone's water. It's annoying. But that is so Losi Los. We would love to start out with if you could introduce yourself a little bit, give us some background on yourself. Uh, Carlos Aviles, currently in LA, filming Good Girls, prior military, father, lover. Just a, a man, a guy. <laughs> All around amazing just, 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 human just being. A guy. Yeah, just lover of life. That's amazing. Yeah. A, a human on this earth. Let's let's dive right into it, man. I what is you know, mental health podcast. What has your journey been with mental health? You can kind of get it. We're all, we're here to have this conversation to basically normalize all the challenges that human beings experience. And we know that a lot of the challenges that we experience, uh, regardless of gender are very similar. And then there's some very gendered challenges for men and for women, um, or anybody on whatever spectrum of the gender you are. So it's just, in, it's, we're happy to, to have you here and kind of combine our, our different experiences and, and hear yours and what this journey yeah. has been for you. You know, it's crazy because when it comes to mental health, uh, I feel like I've been battling depression ever since I was a child and not even knowing what it was, you know what I'm saying? Just kind of going through the motions, you know, this is what life is. This is what you go through. These are the things, you know, like, uh, you know, people, people throw their word 
they don't throw it around, but you know, people talk about PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder so much. And I remember experiencing extreme trauma from the age of five. The the first time I had a gun pointed at my face, I was five years old and we were in El Salvador when it happened. And it just came to the point where things like that were just normal. That's a shocking experience to have so early on because it's we, we now we know especially that in those first seven to eight years of your life your worldview is becoming really formed. Mm. How did that? How do you think that impacted you? It normalized violence for me. You know what I'm saying? It became normal because it wasn't. That was the first time, but definitely not the last. You know, of experience of war. You know, my. My family and I, we used to travel to El Salvador every year, like summertime. During my younger years, like in the 80s, El Salvador was going through a civil war. You know what I'm saying? And so we experienced a lot of listening of firearms going off, bombs going off, things like that. You know what I'm saying? At a very young age. And then my dad was in the military, so we traveled all over the place. And then... uh, when I was in elementary school, me and we, we lived in Panama. And me and my brother would sit and look out the window and we could see bombs and stuff going off in the distance and gunfire and things like that as a child, as a kid. Like, so it, you know, violence and, and destruction and things like that became something that was very normal to me. And do you come from a military background as well? Yeah, yeah. So, I joined the I joined the army in 1998. I was 18 years old, straight out of high school. You know, dealing with the things that I saw there and the training that we had to go through and stuff like that. That I mean, that just it kind of felt like you know I've been conditioned and trained my whole life to to this moment. Being in the military, my dad was in the military, my stepfather was in the military, and just like the the training and the things that we did when I was in the service, you know, it just kind of made me who I thought I was supposed to be anyway, which was a soldier, you know what I'm saying? And a soldier all the time, not just part-time, but like all the time. Like you always have to be sleeping with one eye open, looking around to see your environment. Yeah. Just always on, always on edge. You know what I'm saying? Like I always felt on edge always. And the crazy thing is I wasn't even really that good of a soldier. I was always getting in trouble. <laughs> like always. Always. Like because like uh people uh with uh higher rank or whatever, like I didn't like people telling me what to do. I was very rebellious even in the service. I stayed getting in trouble when I was in the military all the time. And then I had I had my son when I was in the service. He was born September 28, 2001. His name was Javier. And right after I got out of the military, which was uh, 2005, a year later, he passed away, you know, from an asthma attack in his sleep. Man, that's, we definitely want to dive into the grief and the consequences of going through that experience for you. And I also want to backtrack a little bit to, Mm -hmm. you're in the military, you find out you're going to have a son, how do you integrate those two parts of your life? Like, how did you kind of make sense of yourself in that moment? What expectations did you think you needed to have for yourself? I didn't have any. I didn't know. I was a child. I was 19, 20 years old. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know what I was doing. Let alone 9-11 happened days before my son was born. You know what I'm saying? So we were already on high alert guarding the base, doing a lot of things, getting ready for deployments and all types of stuff during the birth of my son, you know what I'm saying? So it was crazy because I I was aware of him and I loved him and, and, and all that stuff and I loved him with all my heart, but I was so focused on what was happening in this country and the military that it, it was kind of distracting. It was hard to balance both. Yeah, I wonder how do you compartmentalize that? Because you were working in a field of service that was extremely masculine and violent and fighting and protective. And in order to do that, I imagine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, you have to learn to really suppress a lot of your emotions. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. You don't have time to you don't have time to cry or or hurt or be in pain. You got a job to do. You got work to do. You got to suck that shit up. Because if not, if 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 you allow yourself to feel something during, right? Say, you know, you're doing a job and something happens, and and you lose focus because of your emotions or anything like that, then you no longer can do the job and you fail the mission or or you get other people hurt. You know what I'm saying? Like if I'm supposed to be pulling guard, right? If I'm supposed to be watching a certain area and my battle buddy, you know, your partner or whatever gets killed right next to you, you can't stop to grieve. You still have a job to do because if you stop and you turn your back on your job and you focus or you put too much time into somebody who's already dead, like there's nothing you can do. You know what I mean? then you leave it open to something else happening and more people dying or you getting killed or whatever. You know what I mean? So you have to kind of shut, shut that, shut that out. It's like you have to close, keep continue to close your heart in order to keep surviving. Cause if you allow your heart to open and you allow yourself to feel, then you're going to be a victim in moments where you need to be a fighter. Yeah. You just can't be vulnerable at that moment in any aspect, emotionally, physically, you cannot allow yourself to become vulnerable. You know what I'm saying? And not saying that you might not have a moment afterwards or when you get to your bunk or you get to your bed or, or whatever, where you, where you break down. But again, it's also alone and by yourself and not in front of anyone. How do they treat that? How do they treat that in the military? Do they have, do they do anything? You just got to sit with it and deal with it. I mean, we have, I mean, we do have psychiatrists and stuff like that in the military, but nobody volunteers to go to that. You're, you're put in this mentality where it feels like, how am I going to talk to somebody about the things that I've seen or the things that I've gone through and they have not experienced the same things? How can they tell me how to deal with this when they don't even know what it's like? So we, most of the time we don't go, we self-medicate, we drink, take pills, you know what I'm saying? Things like that to suppress the feelings. And like I said, it's not to say that the military doesn't have psychiatrists or people that you can go to because they do. It's just not too many people are raising their hand to go. Well, it's not military culture, right? That's that's part of the, it's the culture too. The culture matters. Yeah. I remember during training, our, our drill sergeants, when we were, they used to say, are you hurt or are you injured? If you're hurt, then suck that shit up. We got work to do. Keep it moving. If you're injured, then go to sick call and they'll bandage you up or do whatever. You know what I'm saying? But there's so much pride in the work that you do that you don't even want to say that you're injured because you don't want to disappoint or let down your friends or your battle buddies or anything like that as appearing to be weak. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's the same thing. I, I was doing research on police culture when I was in grad school. And it was very, it's very similar. I, I think the police culture is a military culture, essentially, right? Um, where even, even admitting that you might have PTSD or anxiety or anything like that kind of makes you vulnerable to even losing rank in your job. So it's something that just oh, yeah. get, gets silenced. Yeah, because, I mean, admitting to, to certain things like that or whatever, then to them, they'll look at you like, oh, you're not capable of doing your job anymore. So we need to remove you from your position and let somebody else in there that's more mentally capable of, of doing that job. How do you, how did that impact the rest of your life? I just suffered in silence for most of my life. I didn't speak up about the things that I was going through, you know, to that, to the outside world, I appeared happy. I was excited. You know what I'm saying? We're just really good at painting this picture of everything is okay. How did that impact you and how you dealt with the death of your son? The death of my son fucked me up really bad. He was the one thing that I loved the most in my life, you know? And it fucked me up because when when he died, I was so angry at God. I was so angry at God, right? Because I was like, if he could take the one thing that I loved the most, then I didn't want to love anyone or anything else ever again. I didn't. And in turn, it fucked up my relationship with my other children because I I was distant. I was away. I was reckless. I didn't want to love anyone, anyone, not, a, not even myself. 
it was so it was such a dark dark rabbit hole that i went into after that you know i mean it makes sense that after going through a lifetime of training yourself to dissociate from your emotions and to dissociate from any vulnerabilities then you have children and obviously that's going to be a certain vulnerability that's going to open up parts of your heart that you're not even in the practice of opening up. And then you kind of give into opening that up and then it gets shattered. Then I mean, what you're saying, it sounds like you like double blocked, put like 10 million barricades on your heart after that happened. It was like a springback effect. During that time period of, of after I lost my son, I hurt a lot of people because I was in so much pain. That is by far, I'll do everything in my life over again as long as I don't have to bury another child. Everything. I'll do it all over again. I'll take all the rest of that other trauma, all the rest of that other bullshit to not have to bury another son. At what point did you start getting out of that darkness? And and how huh. you? How, you know? Um. So something that I talk about often to people is when dealing with death of a loved one, it never goes away, ever, ever. It's learning to live with it, having to live with that something missing inside of you. And I know he's okay, and, and I know he he shows himself to me often now. And I'm and I'm okay now. I'm super okay. How does he show up for you these days? It varies. It'll be. Right after he passed away, right, I was working as a mechanic at an auto hobby shop in Virginia. And this girl came in to get a state inspection done to her car. And it was like an old school car. So we pull it into the, into the, uh, into the motor pool and start checking the car out, checking everything. I look in the back seat and there's um, a Dr. Seuss backpack in the back seat of her car with a bunch of books in it. And I, I grabbed the backpack and I said, oh, my God, my son had the same book bag. She was like, where'd you get that from? I was like, it was in the backseat of your car. She was like, that's not mine. I said, well, I mean, it was there. I didn't put it there. She was like, I don't have kids. I'm 21 oh years old. Like, I don't have children. And it was the exact same book bag that my son had, the same books that were inside of it that he had. And we ended up putting it in Lost and Found or whatever. But it was just like things like that, you know, where he would show himself. I had an old woman come up to me too. And at the time, mentally, mentally, I was in such a bad place that I almost wish this woman would appear to me again and talk to me because the person I am now would be more responsive to what she said than what it was back then. I was so angry back then and I cussed this lady out. And now looking back, I feel so incredibly bad. This is a random lady. I don't know her. She was an older woman. And she just walked up to me. And she was like, excuse me. And I was like, yeah, what's up? She said, I just want to let you know your son died for you. And I lost it. I got so, so angry. And I was like, what the fuck you mean he died for me? How dare you come up to who the fuck are you? I was so mad. I was so mad. And like now looking back, I wish she'd come up to me now and tell me that because I would invite her to get a coffee and we could sit down and actually dive deeper into what she means by what she said. So it's just a random woman that you don't even know? I have no idea who she is. To this day, I don't know who she is. Just random. That's amazing. You know, I feel like when we're going through the toughest times in our life or even in grief and in losing somebody, life always has a way of, of throwing little little nuggets of love to kind of mm. keep us keep us going. Like, just... It, I think there's this uh, line from a famous from Patty Griffin song that I that I love, um, and it says like when you think that you can't go any further, love throws a line, and yeah. I I have found that to be so true in my life. And I think it's super true. Absolutely, life has life has thrown me so many lines throughout my life. I, statistically, I'm not supposed to be here because of the things that I've done, because of the things that I've been through, because of the decisions that I've made in my life. I am not supposed to be here talking to you guys about my life. I'm either supposed to be in prison or in a coffin. So life has definitely thrown me a lot of lifelines that I am so appreciative for. And the experiences that I've experienced throughout my life have allowed me to become a better human being and being able to help other people going through 
whatever it is that they may be going through, you know. You and me have talked about your mental health journey. So I know that, you know, there was a period in your life leading up to when Tosh asked you out to mm-hmm. hookah or whatever that led you to Ayahuasca. Yeah. I want to talk about like what was going through your mind at that time. What were you going through? What did life look like? How were you even getting through it? Yeah, I so prior to Natasha asking me out to the drinks, I was in such a I was exhausted. I was so tired of life. I was so tired. Like I just I didn't feel like a good father. My relationship that I was just in for seven years had ended. So I didn't feel like a good boyfriend, lover, whatever. I was depressed that I was in, you know, in my late thirties and still doing fucking security. I was, I was exhausted. I was so tired and I just couldn't carry. I really couldn't carry that weight anymore. And back to, you know, like some of the lifelines that you're talking about is those lifelines get thrown by people also. Right. So like I was literally at my breaking point. I was sitting in my living room watching television, but I also had my pistol right in front of my, on my coffee, on my coffee table. And I was really about to let it just be like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And that's when Tasha called me and was like, hey, let's go have drinks and some hookah and stuff like that. That I same ended day? Up going. Yeah, it was the exact same day. That's crazy. And uh, so well, we went and... I want to, I, I always do a little pause right here whenever this conversation comes up. Um, because I, it's, I feel like it's an important shout out to the situation, especially in this country, statistically, as far as we know, I mean, Mm. it's all over the world, but that men are four times as likely to kill themselves than women. And a huge part of that is because of what you're describing, which is just having to feeling like you can't go to anyone. You can't talk to anyone. You have to figure it out on your own. So you can't have community around you to help you through that. And so uh, your story is like a testament to that narrative. And yet you were able to not fall into those statistics. I think it also, it it also has to do with people not believing men when they're going through shit. Because there was times where I, I thought I might've asked for help, but they're like, man, come on, man, you're going to be all right. Suck it up. Like, bro, it's not that serious. You know, like even with the death of my son, right. Inherently, People cater to the woman, the mother, when a child passes away. And they and the father is kind of just like, he's tough. He'll be all right. He still has to be the rock of the family and the hard person. And I'm, I'm trying not to get emotional now, but but I was hurting too. You know what I'm saying? And I think a lot of times it just comes to that point, you know, where I'm not going to ask for help because they're just going to be like, oh, man, you're a man. You'll be all right. And you're not. Yeah. That's the thing that has to end. That's the thing that has to end. But anyway, so I interrupted you if you want to continue with the Tosh story too. But but yeah, I mean that that's what has to end is yeah. men going through this on their own. Because we, we are yeah. all human here. Yeah. And then with Tosh, so she invited me. She had invited me to have hookah and and have some drinks and while we were there, she started telling me about ayahuasca, right? And I had heard about ayahuasca. And, you know, for those of you that don't know what ayahuasca is, it's a it's a, a, a drink derived from a root and a plant uh, in the Amazons, right? And when you, when you digest it, it's a hallucinogenic. It has DMT in it and a few other properties. And it, it just takes you on a journey, right? So I had heard of it. And she was telling me how she was going, I think it was in a week or two from that day, to Brooklyn to do ayahuasca. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. I've always been interested, but I thought you had to go like to Peru or to the Amazon to do it. And she was like, nah, our shaman travels and uh, I'm going to Brooklyn. Do you want to do it? And it was literally like right around the corner. And I was like, nah, I really don't. I really don't have the money. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm interested, but I don't I don't have it like that right to do it. Maybe next time. And it was almost like she knew that I needed it, and she paid for everything. She she bought my plane ticket, she paid for the ceremony, and she was like, no, you're going. And it eventually saved my life. I mean, it literally saved my life. Of starting the journey of forgiving myself and removing ego and uh, 
the biggest thing was forgiving myself. I think we all have to forgive ourselves. And just understand that everything's going to be all right. What did the ayahuasca show you? So I did ayahuasca six times in a period of eight months. Now that I think about it, say it out loud, I'm like, wow. So the first time I did it, that time in Brooklyn was a complete cleansing, a complete, complete cleansing. Like literally, I purged so much that that particular ceremony. I was like, there's nothing left inside of me to come out. I don't know. But like at the end of the ceremony, when you look at your your little bucket where you purge at, there was barely any liquid in there. And what you were purging was things that you have been suppressing for so long, things that, you know, demons that you have pushed down deep inside you, things like that were coming out. The the ego was being removed and the self-doubt, the hatred for self, all these things were being removed out of me. You know what I'm saying? That that first that first go round. And you know, I had did my research on ayahuasca. And it talked about how a lot of people see their dead loved ones and things like that when they're in their journey. And I remember towards the end of my journey, I asked her, uh, Mother Ayahuasca, if I was going to see my son. And she said, no, you're not ready. She said, she literally told me that this first one was just a complete cleansing. And she was like, maybe if you come back, you'll see him. And for the first time in my life after that experience, I was happy. I was happy. I was sincerely happy. I will, the ceremony ended like at five in the morning. We went back to the hotel. I showered, changed, and walked around Brooklyn for like three hours by myself, just taking life back in. I was so excited about life mm. after that. After that moment, life was so beautiful. Like the veil had been lifted up out from in front of my eyes. And it was like, no, you're in control of this. You are in control. Life is beautiful because you allow it to be beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just incredible. It reminds me of that quote that when we're in those very, very, very dark places that we feel like we want to die mm-hmm. and, we, and we don't want to take part in life anymore. Um, the quote says, you don't want to die you want to live. And we think what we want is to die. But the reason we even feel that way is because we're not getting to fully live. Absolutely. So that's Absolutely. what ayahuasca, that's what ayahuasca opened up again. It kind of it sounds like it just took those layers of hardening off of your heart and just allowed your life force to start moving through again. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, you know, it was uh the one thing that they say about ayahuasca is ayahuasca is a show-all, not a fix-all. Ayahuasca doesn't fix anything. It shows you what the problems are, and then you have now it's your turn to do the work. You know what I mean? Um, and she showed me. She showed me all of that. But then she also showed me that I don't need her. And everybody's journey is different, right? Like, I've done it six times. Some people might only have to do it once. Some people might have to do it for for however long they see fit. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody's journey is different. But after my six times, the message I got was, you are capable of getting here on your own. You don't need me anymore. You don't need to drink me anymore. And um, I had did a breathwork exercise here in LA. And in my breathwork, I got to the same place I was at when I did ayahuasca. And it was so incredible. So incredible. Talk about that, because that's something we've been bringing into the conversation on Pretty Mental, because I got trained as a facilitator earlier this year. And it has been one of the craziest practices for me, like one of the most transformative, one of the most embodied, transcendental, deeper than meditation can take me literally feels like when, cause you know, for yeah. to give people some background, Los and I met through ayahuasca. <laughs> we were in an ayahuasca session together. It was crazy. That was a crazy session. <laughs> Cacawing like a bird. And shit. Lose, Lose, okay. Lose, is over here. Lose is over here flopping his wings. Real quick. You guys, Carlos turns into a freaking animal. Literally. Whenever he does ayahuasca, I've done it with him twice and he was like a snake. <laughs> he was a bird. He turns into animals. That's a, and I'm not saying like 
I, I mean, I do on the outside see you acting literally like you become an animal, but you, yeah. when you get out of it, you're like, Oh, I literally, you felt, you feel it too. The animal spirits take over you. It's so wild. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, even when I look at myself, when I'm in the ceremony and I look at myself, I'm not a human. I'm the animal. You know what I'm saying? Like when I'm a panther, I look at my hands and their paws, right? When I'm a bird, there's literally wings out of my back flapping in the air. When I was a snake, I was literally a snake. This is crazy because I remember, I think it was the second time that I did it and I was next to you and Oh, that was an intense one for me. I remember I was just like, it was starting to hit me. And then I looked, looked to my left, real hazy eyed. Cause it might, I was starting to, you know, go into the other dimension. Mm. And then I see you, but I saw a black snake and I was like, Oh my God, Carlos is a giant snake. Right now. <laughs> I saw a giant black snake where Carlos was. And I started you almost like you were like, um, I'm trying to describe it for for people since we don't have video on the podcast, but like being like wavy, like your body was waving like a snake. And I remember I started getting sucked into your trip. So I had to literally pull myself out of it in order to come back in mind. But I remember thinking like this motherfucker is turning into another animal. (laughs) Again. It was like a snake snake charmer. You know what I'm saying? It was. It was like, just like, I remember moving, like swaying back and forth almost like the the shaman was standing in front of me with the little flute or something like that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hold on. And I remember, I literally remember when this, it was wearing off and I was going to go to the bathroom and I, and Tosh was helping facilitate it. So she was basically helping take care of everyone. And she was helping me walk to the bathroom. And as I was walking to the bathroom, she goes, wow, Los is literally <laughs> slithering around like a snake right now. <laughs> And then another another point I saw you like flapping your wings and you were a bird and I just I kept having to like jump back into my own trip because I was like this is crazy he how does this happen every day but um okay I totally veered us off I was talking about wait but real quick I want to ask something about the animal thing what gift what gift do you think do you gather from experiencing these animal forms so it's crazy, right? Because through my experience, I've learned that I'm Native American, right? Also. And um, when I was doing research on, on Native Americans and stuff like that, some of the natives were shapeshifters and they were able to turn into different animals and stuff like that. So I'm assuming that maybe in one of my past lives, that's that's what I was, you know what I'm saying? I was a shapeshifter. It's so incredible, you know, like... In one of my experiences, I remember being in the, in the middle of the galaxy and I was just floating in the middle of the galaxy and an extraterrestrial was standing in front of me and he was fixing me and adjusting me and fixing some things. And after he or she was done, he disappeared back into the galaxy and I started shooting down back to earth like a meteor. And when I when I hit the ground in this huge crater... When I came out of the hole, I was a I was a snake. I was an anaconda. And if you look into the stories of the the natives in the Amazon, believe that the Nile River was that snake that crashed into the earth that created the earth. So, Whoa. is it the Nile yeah. River or the Amazon River? The the Am- is it the Amazon? I'm tripping. One of the yeah the Am- <laughs> yeah that one. Sorry, my stuff is off but yeah okay okay that's amazing that's how that, that's what's so fascinating about these shamanic practices and cosmologies is that they repeat themselves and very verify themselves even with people that have no prior knowledge that these cosmologies yeah. existed it's past lives man so with with breath work what i was saying is that when oh, yeah. you when we did ayahuasca essentially our spirits they leave the physical form. They're not limited to our physical form. They are, mm. they expand to the entirety of their being to, to take up the universe and to other dimensions. And that's what breath work did for me. My spirit mm. really did leave my body. It blended dimensions. Right. All time completely collapsed. And what was it like for you? What did that do for you? And also 
that's huge because I remember when you were doing ayahuasca and you weren't going to like it wasn't like like I know for my second one it's so intense I'm like I need another two to 20 years before I can do this (laughs) and I was like Carlos is a champ like he's he's doing it again and just like you said everyone has their own journey with it and there's whatever your body will tell you what you need, you know? But then I remember you saying, I just did breath work and I don't feel like I need to do ayahuasca for a minute. What was that like for you? Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of the same similar feelings that you just talked about, you know, like I remember it it was literally almost exactly like when I was doing ayahuasca for the first time. Right. When I first did ayahuasca, I was getting so irritated because I didn't think it was working. I was like, this is stupid. I was getting hot, not knowing that this is all part of the process of, of it starting. So when I was doing the breath work, she's she's coaching us on how to breathe, right? Like in through your nose, into your stomach, into your chest, out through your mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like it was like a weird pattern of how we had to breathe. And I remember laying there and I was like, this is stupid. This shit is not working. Like, why am I breathing like this? This is dumb. Like, like, like I'm like, I'm about to give birth or something like that. Right. Like just, and I'm like, why am I, this is dumb. And then it just like, I seriously. And just like ayahuasca out of nowhere, it fucking hit. And I remember feeling a tingly sensation, like in my core, like right in the middle of my chest and my stomach. And then it started moving down to my hands and my feet. And I was like, what the fuck? And then I was no longer in my body and my body was just there. And I was just floating over top of my body and just experiencing everybody else's energy in there and all the same sensations that I felt when I was doing ayahuasca. The the only thing that I, that was different from ayahuasca was the visuals, right? Like the, the things that I visually saw in ayahuasca, I didn't see in breath work, but all the body feels and the removement of the spirit, I felt that in breath work. And that's when I knew I was like, oh shit, I don't, I don't never have to drink anything to get here. I can get here on my own through practice and through work and through meditation and, and things like that. What have been the biggest insights that these practices have given you? That we as human beings are incredible creatures. I don't even think we can fathom how incredible we are. We still have no idea. Even through everything that I've been through and the things that I've experienced, I still don't think we know how great we are. We're just, we're so powerful. We're so powerful and we allow stupid stuff to cloud our judgment and to cloud and to block the God in us, right? Because we all are God, right? We all are. And life and experiences block that from, from us knowing how, how incredible we are and how in control we are. We are in control. We are in control. So that was probably one of the biggest the things biggest. that I've taken from. How has that like integrated for you? Because, you know, we talk about, like you say, that ayahuasca is the show all but it's not the fix all. So like it's shown you all these things. And then this is something we talk about on the podcast all the time, even with therapy, even with practices like hypnotherapy, it's you have these moments where you are shown, you see into the trauma, you see into what the healing can look like, you see into it, but then you have to go into the very unglamorous day to day process of integrating that in order for it to actually be something. What has that been Mm -hmm. like for you? So initially, right after doing like ayahuasca and stuff like that, it was fairly easy. It was really easy for me to, I mean, stick to a routine and 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 do all the things that I've that I needed to do to continue to do the work. Right? I was, I was reading a lot. I was uh, eating. You know, I went. I was vegan for almost two years, only drinking water because we're not supposed to drink anything else. So I mean. Uh, writing in my journal, meditating. I mean, I was literally doing it every day, all the time, consistently. Immediately after I did ayahuasca. And then as time started going by, I started realizing that I stopped doing certain things and I started regressing back to doing the things that I used to do, which was not eating healthy, which was not journaling, not meditating, you know, starting to feel depressed again and uh the only thing that has saved me is like now i am aware of it now i see it 
So when I see it, I'm like, oh no, I gotta fix this. I'm like, oh nope, Mm-mm. nope, can't, nope. <laughs> I, feel you co- I, I feel you coming, motherfucker. Nope. <laughs> I got work to do. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's the only difference. That it's not that I don't have bad moments or that I don't have low moments because I do. It's just now I am aware of those moments and I know that I got to get back to work to get out of that. What gets you through those low moments now? I just allow myself to feel it. It's happening for a reason, right? It's not just happening for nothing. There's something that I need to get out of it. And instead of running from it or disassociating myself from it, I allow myself to sit in it and feel it. And if I have to cry, if I have to scream, it, whatever it is that I have to do to get through this 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 feeling, then I do that. You know, so I just I just allow myself to sit in whatever feeling it is that I'm feeling. And I think sometimes, you know what I'm saying, like your body I mean, not sometimes, all the time, your body tells you what you need. And if it's telling you to rest, it's for a reason, you know. So just lay down. Like I said, uh, be aware of the be aware of what your body's telling you, and then and then you can learn how to maneuver through it or out of it. You know. Yeah, the powerful thing about these practices like breathwork and ayahuasca, or even like hypnotherapy, these practices that kind of take you to that other side, is that you get a glimmer and you get to actually a visceral felt experience of what wellness is. Mm. And once you have that, you have a north star. Before that, you are born into a world that's full of trauma or like, you know, it's all around us. So from a very young age, a lot of us lose track of like, what does it even, what does feeling good even mean? Like, all I know is this darkness. So like, I don't know that it's hitting. I don't know that it's just, Mm -hmm. this is just, it just is. When you have these experiences, you suddenly have a North Star. So even if that darkness starts coming back, you know that there's other possibilities. So you have more of a roadmap for getting back to that place. Yeah, super true. And that's what saved me along the way is knowing knowing that when I do have these bad moments, that it's only a moment. That's it. It's just a moment. Whatever I'm, whatever I'm experiencing right now is only happening. And when you think about it in the, in the grand scheme of life, it's, it's a millisecond compared to what, all the amazing, beautiful things I've experienced in my life. Just a little moment. And I'll get through it. And I think because I have been through life and death situations, I'm able to look at things and be like, it's not that serious. Snap out of it. It's it's gonna be it's not gonna kill me, so I'll be okay. If I'm having a bad day because I didn't do something right, I'm able to quickly reel it back in and be like, What am I tripping for? Am I gonna die? Is somebody else gonna die because I didn't do this the right way or because I didn't make it somewhere on time or because I forgot to call somebody or whatever we stress out about, you know what I'm saying? Am I going to die? And essentially the answer is no, I'm not going to die. So uh, it'll be okay. It'll be all right. You know, something else that you're actually a really great example of is, um, and I think this is might be like the, the black and white difference from your life before to now is keeping a strong community around you. Mm. You are such a community leader type person now. That means a lot. Thank you. Cause I, for the longest time, I never felt like I had a, a, a community, you know what I'm saying? I didn't feel like I had a, a tribe, you know, and then not to say that I didn't have friends, but I was so closed off in the things that I was going through and the things that I was feeling that I was always like, y'all really don't even know me. Y'all have no idea who I really am. So how can you authentically be my friend when I'm not even showing you my true self? And now I'm part of a community where I do show my true self and I am vulnerable and I do show my pain. And I also, more than anything, I show my love. I love you guys more than anything in this world, anything. And I make sure that I say it often. I make sure that I show it as often as I possibly can because I'm so incredibly grateful for you, for all of you, you know what I'm saying, for being a part of my life because without the community and without the tribe, I wouldn't be here right now. Yeah, I think that's what like a huge part of healing and being on the other side of that pain is realizing how valuable human connection is. 
Because hmm. before they before the healing, when we're in those dark places, like all we kind of want to do, and this might be part of because of the shame of social, uh, the social sh uh, shame and stigma around mental health challenges, is that all we the, there's such a huge temptation to isolate ourselves and to not let ourselves be seen. And then once hmm. we kind of like break through that, open up our hearts again there's almost this like non-negotiable I'm gonna let myself be seen because I know that in order for my mental health to stay intact, I have to be in community. A hundred percent true. You have to be. Like we said it in the live, there's no way you can maneuver through this life alone. It's impossible. You can't do it. And I wanted to, I tried my hardest to go through this shit alone. I, I really wanted to, I didn't want anybody in my shit. I didn't want nobody in my business. I didn't know I didn't want anybody to know who I really was. I really tried my hardest and it pushed me to almost committing suicide because I, I just I couldn't handle it no more. It was too it was so much weight to carry and no human can carry this weight alone. None. And and, and everybody goes through their own trauma and their own their own journey of pain and suffering and and you need people to help you carry that weight. You cannot, cannot do, I don't care how strong you think you are, men and women, you cannot do this by yourself. You can't. No, and we live in a society that kind of makes us think that we need to do it on our own because it's not like from the moment that we hop out of the womb, we're given all these tools and we're given these messages of, hey, listen, this is a tribe, this is a community, we're gonna do it together, we're in this together. We kind of just start having to follow the rules, stay in line, not get into, we, it becomes very individualistic. Yeah. So we yeah. have to actively keep our community close and spread those messages. That's what we're trying to do with this podcast and spread messages anywhere we can of like, Hey, it's actually abnormal to do this alone. The normal thing is to connect, to be open, to share. Yeah. yeah. And the risks, the risks that can come along let's, you know, quote unquote risks of getting hurt that can come along with letting ourselves be seen are worth taking for the possibility of, of the benefits of letting ourselves be seen, you know, cause I think a lot of people are scared mm. of like, oh, okay, if I share my vulnerabilities, I'm going to be rejected, whatever, whatever. In reality, the more that you let your, your humanity be seen, like there may be a person here or there that might reject it because they don't know how to sit with their own either. But that small, that person's small rejection is worth all the other people that are ready to receive you mm. and all yeah. the other people that are ready to engage in authentic connection. Totally. I yeah. remember, I mean, Los, take our friendship, for example. When I met you after ayahuasca, you were ready and open to be seen and to love. I was ready and open to be seen and to love. And I was like, this fucking guy is amazing. I love him. <laughs> he has the yeah. biggest heart of like anyone I've ever met, I want to be his friend. And, and we just kept hanging out. We, Paula came into the mix. We were with Tosh. Like we just formed this beautiful tribe of people, everyone with open hearts, just ready to show up yeah. for their community. Yeah. I think, um, I think a big problem that people have also with opening up is they don't want to be a burden on people either. And uh, they think, but also in opening up, in being vulnerable and open, you have to realize that you're going to lose some people. And that's okay. Because the people that are not ready for that change in you will trickle off and leave. And you have to be okay with letting them go. Because the right people, the people that are going to be there for you, the people that you can go to without question will appear. I promise you they'll appear. The more and more you start opening up about yourself and being vulnerable and being seen, the right the the wrong people will fall off and the right people will come in. And I think that's something that I've learned along the way also is being okay with letting people go and not in a malicious way, not in a, like a I hate you way or oh we're not friends anymore so fuck you, but more of a like a okay, our journey has now come to an end. You have to go your way and I will continue to go my way and I wish you well, but it's just no longer for us together anymore, you know? And I think that is love because there's a, a giant level of trust inside of love when you kind of just surrender and allow life to flow and yeah. you love unconditionally. 
Yeah. Yeah. And that means loving, you know, the process of everything of people coming and leaving and knowing that Mm -hmm. everything, everything's good. Yeah. Everything's going to be all right. Everything is really like, you know, even listening to people like Bob Marley, right. Who, who was already practicing that type of lifestyle of everything's going to be all right. And like when you're younger, you really don't connect with exactly what he was saying, right? Like you just think it's a song, but there's such a deeper message that in anything that you go through, even in death, everything is going to be all right. Everything's going to be cool. That's what we should title this podcast. Everything's going to be all right. (laughs) Everything's going to be all right. Yeah, everything's going to be all right. And that's just that's just something that I remind myself of every day. When I wake up in the morning, regardless of how I'm feeling or whatever I may be going through, is everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be cool. Absolutely. Well, we are at time, and we are going to finish off with our typical question of what does mental health mean to you these days? Mental health means facing yourself looking at yourself, diving deep into into who you really are, who you want to be, who you're going to manifest yourself to be, and bravery being it's it takes a brave person to look inside themselves and face themselves. And bravery is being afraid and doing it anyway. Love it. A little yeah. bit of courage. Courage and yeah. an open heart will take us around yeah. the world. Okay, Losi Los, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We love you with our whole souls. I love y'all too. Thank you so much. I love y'all and talk to y'all soon. And where can everyone find you? On Instagram, it's the real underscore Carlos underscore Aviles. Twitter is body underscore marked up. Oh, and you can watch Good Girls season three whenever it comes out on Netflix. Not sure when it drops. But it's on NBC, and I play a character named Mick, and you can see me on there. Hey. Perfect. And we'll add all those, all that information to our show notes, show notes hey. as well. All right, everybody, tune in every Monday at 6 a.m. EST. We love you guys. And be kind to yourselves. Bye. Yes, peace.